Hi friends, how are you today? I hope you're having a wonderful day so far. My name is Bailey Sarian and today is Monday, which means it's murder, mystery, and makeup Monday. If you are new here, hi, my name is Bailey Sarian and on Mondays I sit down and I talk about a true crime story that's been heavy on my... There we go. Uh, that's been heavy on my noggin. There. Thank you. And I do my makeup at the same time. If you're interested in true crime and you like makeup, I would highly suggest you subscribe because I'm here for you on Mondays. Okay, so today's story is another horrible, horrible, horrible guy. <laughs> it just doesn't stop. It keeps going, doesn't it? Feels like never gonna run out of stories here. So today's story takes place across the pond in the United Kingdom in a quaint little English town named Shorn, which is in Kent. It's about an hour outside of London. And based off the pictures I saw online, it's giving Beauty and the Beast when Belle is like singing in her village in the intro. Little town. Filled with little people every day. Like the one before. Like it's giving, it looks just like that. It's so, it looks so cute. That's all I have to say. Anyways, bad things happened here. <laughs> Not very bell-like. So it's a cute town. Great, I wanna go there. So 1975 is when our story takes place. And again, this is a very small, not even a town, village. You know when it's small when they call it a village. So the internet told me that there are no more than 2,500 people living there right now. But back in 1975, there were, um, you know, maybe like three pubs, a post office, a doctor's office, a grocery store, and like a bakery. But of course they had a church. It's called St. Peter's and St. Paul's. The priest at this church was a man named Father Crean. So Father Crean lived behind the church, right behind the church in his cottage. And the cottage had it had its own name. It's called the Malt House. And while the nuns, they lived in the in a convent, which was basically right next door, and the convent was called St. Catherine's. And as most expect from priests, he was a man of routine. Father Crean had a schedule and he followed it almost every single day. Same shirt, different day type of guy. He was a predictable man. Let's fast forward to March 21st, 1975. Father Crean gives mass at 7.30 a.m. He goes and does some clerical stuff. And then he speaks with a nun named Sister Therese who ran St. Catherine's. And she was in charge of like the business side of things. So they would communicate on the regular. It was said he then went back to his cottage area, the malt house. He mowed the lawn, he took his dog for a walk, and overall it was just another typical day for him. Now, Father Crean, he, you know, handled himself, he did everything, but one thing he did not do was cook. But that didn't mean he went hungry. So Father Crean would pick up all of his meals from the nuns who handled all of the cooking. Great, right? Every day he would go to the kitchen where there would be like a tray left out for him. He would gather his food. He would take it back to his place. And then once he was finished, he always brought back the dirty dishes back to the kitchen. And he did this three times a day like clockwork. Father Crean was known for two things, his routine and his relationship with God. So he stuck to a routine, you get it. That's what I'm trying to really get at here. <laughs> so it seemed a little strange to Sister Therese when she noticed 
that he never came by to pick up his dinner tray that evening. So she's looking at the clock, noticing that it was already past six. And this is very unlike him. She's like, hmm, mm-hmm, this man, never late for dinner. So she goes outside and she looks across to the malt house and she sees Father Crane's dog. He was outside on the lawn all by himself, which was again, something very odd. Like it's something he would never do, or at least he had never done before. His dog was always with him or on a leash. So a couple hours go by and she still hasn't seen Father Crane. So she's getting more and more worried. And she looks towards his house again and notices that the priest's downstairs lights were on. So she's like, okay, it looks like he's home. The curtains were closed. So she couldn't see inside, but there was a light on. So she's like, okay, maybe he's home. Well, as time keeps going by, she just decides, you know, I'm just gonna bring him his dinner tray. He must be starving. He hasn't eaten. So she gets there and his cottage door, the front door, it's locked. It was like a red flag. Father Crane never locked his door. So again, Sister Therese, she's like, what the hell is going on? She runs back to the convent and grabs the keys so she can let herself into his place. But when she goes inside, she doesn't find anyone home. All she notices are a bunch of his dirty uh, lunch plates they were still in the kitchen. So once she sees all of this, she rushes back to the convent and calls the police. Like I said earlier, small town, everyone knows everyone and everyone knows their business. So it's not weird when she calls the police and asks casually, like, hey, have you guys heard from Father Crean? Or maybe like seen him? Maybe heard that something happened? You know, anything? Hello? Because, she knew that Father Crane was like a big fan of drinking alcohol, the blood of Christ. He was a big fan of drinking. So Sister Therese was like hinting to the police that maybe, like, did he drink too much again and pass out at the pub? You can tell me. This is a safe space, she's asking. Like maybe he fell into a bush drunk somewhere, anything, shit. But unfortunately they had not heard or seen anything. So another important thing was that um, Father Crane didn't live in his cottage alone. I mean, yes, he, he was a bachelor being a priest and all, but he did uh, have an opportunity to make a little extra income. So he rented out like a, a space in his place to a guy named Mick. So this Mick guy, he too was getting a little weird. He hadn't seen the priest all day, but he did see the dog on the lawn and he brought him inside. And like Sister Therese, he's thinking, oh my God, like Father Crane would never leave his dog outside alone in the cold. So now um, he's starting to search all of the cottage, like, just to see if he's there. Any clues, anything? So even though they lived in the same house, I guess they were in like completely separate wings, kind of like a duplex. Mick wasn't very familiar with Father Crean's side of the house, but he goes in, he calls out to him and he doesn't hear anything. So he decides to like search through all of the rooms and nothing, no sign. Sister Therese goes over there and asks him if he searched the house. And he's like, yeah, I searched the whole house. Nothing's here. But then the sister who, mind you, has been a part of the church for quite some time, 
a lot longer than this Mick guy has, she knows the area way better. So this cottage was built in the 17th century and the architecture was, I guess, like full of really small odd corners and small little rooms, just like hidden little doors somewhere that would lead to who knows what, which I kind of love that, but you know, there's lots of places to search. So when Mick had searched the area, he failed to open a bathroom, which was like down the stairs in the basement-like area. Now this door was so small that Mick actually thought it was like a cupboard of some sort. So when Sister Therese comes to search the house, she sees that the downstairs bathroom door is closed. And when she opens it, Mm -mm, mm -mm, poor thing. She finds Father Crean inside. The worst part of all, he was dead. Ugh. Now, poor Father Crean's body was in a bathtub. It was fully submerged in bloody water with like blood all over the walls. He was still pretty much fully dressed. He had on a duffel coat, one rain boot, just one, a gray sock, blue oversocks, belted trousers. His underwear, a scarf, he even had on a woolly hat, woolly hat, lots of clothes. And also there was a rosary. It was placed right over Father Crean's right hand and it was just like draped over his hand, which many thought like it was placed there, creepy. And on top of that, there was a towel covering his head. And when the towel was removed, his forehead was missing, brain was exposed. So when the towel was removed, it like was stuck to the brain matter and it pulled, it pulled it out of his head. I don't, yep, brutal. So police came out, they examined uh, his body and the scene. And it seemed to them that he had been attacked like immediately upon coming home. There were no signs of defensive wounds at all. An autopsy showed that he also had brain matter or brain tissue like on his fingers, indicating that he most likely had like touched his open wound at some point. It seemed that Father Crean must have like come home, walked into the door and was instantly attacked and was just shocked thinking to the himself like, what just hit me in the head? And then he must have gone to like touch it. And that's when it was like, that's, that's his brain he's touching. He touched his own noggin, boy. The autopsy also found a number of other visible wounds. There were like 19 in total. He had various bruises all over him. There was a cut below his left jaw, above uh, his left eyebrow, as well as like stab wounds in the lower neck and below his left ear. While the wound in the center of the forehead was clearly like the most traumatic, there were multiple other head injuries on Father Crean's skull. There was like a semi-circular wound on his upper left forehead. There was a T-shaped wound at his hairline and a Y-shaped wound to the upper right forehead. And there were like two more wounds on the very top of his head. Lots of wounds. Fracture to the left of his cheekbone, five inch wound above his right ear. There were also a bunch of internal injuries. There was a huge wound in the right upper chest, which had basically collapsed his lung. This was brutal, right? Yeah, brutal attack on Father Crane. Poor guy. Investigators also found the murder weapon, a small wooden handled ax. Sheesh. Who would do this? Who would kill this beloved priest and do it so brutally? My first thought was like Mick. He lived with him. Mick probably was like bumping heads with this guy, asking him to clean up and stuff. And Mick's like, I don't wanna clean up. Spoiler, it wasn't Mick. I know, I know. 
I was, I was like, well, okay. The detective inspector on the case actually had a theory. You see, there had been an incident two years prior that involved Father Creed, and they were believing, hey, maybe this has to do with his death. They gotta start somewhere. You see, back in 1973, I think it was only two years prior, Father Crean was the victim of another crime. Now the charges were dropped, but what had happened was there was a man who had stolen a check from him, from the priest, and written it out for $80. Well, the detective remembered that this guy who had stolen the check, he was full on bonkers, like legit, something wasn't right. So. The detective guy's like, well, I should probably start there. See if the original check culprit was the one who was involved. So the detective goes off to find the original check culprit, 23-year-old Patrick Mackay. This is when he shows up at the house where Patrick was staying. And Patrick opens up the door, tells the detective, oh, thank God you're here. Please just arrest me. Yeah, I was like, what? Over? Okay. Yeah, allegedly, Patrick was like, thank God you're here, I'm so relieved. Yes, I'm the one who killed Father Crean and I need to be stopped. He even asked the detective, like, please just arrest me right now. Okay, so how did we get here? What's up with this Patrick guy and why is he confessing so easily? Well, this Patrick guy has a long story. He didn't just get here, he worked his way over here. So Patrick Mackay was born in 1952 in Guyana, South America, which at the time was still a British colony. Patrick's mother, her name was Marion, and a native of Guyana, and his father, Harold, was a British citizen who left England to kind of escape his really sad past. Harold, Patrick's father, as a young man, was said to be soft-spoken and kind, and honestly just wanted to live a simple life as an accountant. Like that was his ultimate dream. He wanted to be an accountant. Dream big, you know, I love that, simple. But unfortunately for him, before he could, World War II broke out and Harold enlisted in the military. And like most people who have seen the horrors of war, really messed him up, not just physically, but mentally the most. I guess there was like this one time he was out on a mission and his entire squad was attacked and he ended up being the only survivor of the attack, Harold. Yeah, could you imagine living with that? Everyone else died except for you. Anyways, having to live with that, if you don't get some kind of help, I mean, that's gonna eat you alive. And it did for Harold. Okay, don't blame him. So once he came back from the war, Harold tried to push past it, right? He ended up becoming an accountant and getting married, which was great. And he and his wife got pregnant. And it seems like things were really on the up and up for Harold until sadly, during childbirth, his wife and the baby died. Yeah. So obviously like anyone would, Harold fell into a deep depression and started drinking a lot. In one last attempt to like pull himself out of of this depression, he was like, I need a change of scenery, I need to get out of here. So he takes a job working as an accountant on a sugar plantation down in British Guiana, which is where he met and married his new wife, Marion. Now his problems followed him, my friends, as they always do, you can try and run but they always catch up, don't they? Now, sadly for Harold, his alcoholism worsened. And although he was happy when Marion got pregnant, Harold became more and more aggressive 
and then abusive. There was this one time that stuck out to um, Marion, especially, because it happened to her, where he, Harold, had kicked Marion in the stomach while she was pregnant with Patrick. Everything ended up being okay, but you know, need we say more? Well, actually, you know, the story is about Patrick, so maybe everything didn't turn out okay, but either way, not okay, Harold. You don't do that. Harold and Marion would go on to have two more children and they were both daughters. So Harold moved the whole family back to England where Harold essentially started really seriously, like actually drinking himself to death. And he, on top of that, was physically abusive with both Marion and Patrick, but he wouldn't, Harold wouldn't like touch the daughters. He always left them alone. He would never beat them or anything. So this was really confusing to Patrick, who would later say it was frustrating and confusing. Like why would his dad only beat up him and his mom and not the other two daughters? Like that would, that's confusing. Apparently the only time Harold would spend bonding time with his son, Patrick, was when the two would like sit down and Harold would share stories from his uh, time at war. And they were like violent war stories. That's the only time they would bond. So in 1962, when Patrick was 10 years old, that's when his father sadly passed away from a heart attack. His last words to Patrick were, quote, remember to be good. End quote. That didn't go so well. After his father's death, it was said this is when Patrick, his attitude, his behavior, everything just went downhill. At school, he was a schoolyard bully and would beat the crap out of other kids, like brutally, not just in a kid way. Patrick was like curb smashing kids' heads and stuff. Like it was awful. He would also just throw super violent tantrums if anyone tried to tell him no, or if um, they kept him from sitting in his father's chair, which was like in the living room area, his father always sat in the same chair and Patrick would sit in it. And if anyone else sat in that chair, Patrick would full on go psycho. And then on top of that, if his mom gave any attention to the daughters or any attention that Patrick perceived to be like, favoritism, he would just explode. But all of his anger would be um, towards his mom. I mean, he was mean towards his sister, but like it was really bad towards his mom. He was just an angry kid with some very big feelings to say the least. Poor Marion, his mother, just kind of lost it. I mean, both with her husband dying and then Patrick, uh, his behavior, she considered it to be just straight up terrifying. She couldn't take it anymore. And she ended up having just a full on nervous breakdown. She collapsed on the floor and she ended up being hospitalized for like four months because of this nervous breakdown she had. During these four months, Patrick, and I'm assuming his sisters, I'm not quite sure what happened to his sisters to be honest, but Patrick was kind of sent from home to home, living with different people, family members, friends, anyone that would take him in, but they all complained that his behavior was just so bad that they didn't wanna keep him anymore. So he was like couch surfing at a really young age. So his mother got them back when she got out of the hospital, but his behavior by that point was way worse. He had definitely taken it up a notch. The police would become very involved in Patrick's life. They were called to his home up to four times a week just for his violent outburst. And then around this time is when Patrick 
started to uh, torture animals. Yeah, great. Never a great sign. He was seen by neighbors numerous times. Patrick like out front, there was this one time where he was playing with dead birds in the garden. He was like throwing them up in the air. But he would do this, uh, squirrels, small rodents, stuff like that, you know? Mm -mm. And then he went after the family pet, which was like a pet tortoise. Like the tortoise like literally does nothing but be a tortoise. And I was over here thinking like tortoises were indestructible, but no, Patrick found a way to ruin and kill tortoises by roasting them over like an open fire. Yeah, so he killed the family pet by roasting him. This is gonna end well, isn't it? Patrick also threatened a grown woman with a pitchfork. He would set fire to beach huts for entertainment and took to stealing hens and garden gnomes from his neighbors. This happened over and over again and anyone in his sight seemed to be a target. He was angry and everyone in this small village also seemed to be aware of it. People were talking, they always do. Right? Mm -hmm. So you know how Patrick loved listening to his dad's war stories? Apparently it became a fixation and Patrick became obsessed with Nazis and Nazism and was pretty passionate about it. All right, cool, man. Many sources speculate that he became obsessed with the Nazi side of things because his dad was a World War II vet and like a way to get back at his dad was by praising the Nazis. And even though his father was dead, it does kind of make sense. We don't know if that's true or not. It's just like an observation people have made. Either way, Patrick loved the Nazis. Oy Patrick though, he took it a little too far when, uh, yeah, not the animals or anything. He took it a little too far when he began lighting places of worship on fire. Oh yeah, when he was 11 years old, he set fire to a curtain in a Catholic church. And that, my friends, is when he went to juvenile custody for the very first time. But not the last, that's for sure. And it definitely didn't scare him. Between the ages of 12 and 22, Patrick was incarcerated in psychiatric hospitals. He went to special schools. He went to prison, juvie, mm, different like, uh, parents or family members taking care of him. And he did this on like 19 separate occasions. He attacked children, he attacked his family, he attacked firefighters. He also tried on different occasions to commit suicide. And this was just one very messed up guy. Patrick was just like bad from the get go. Patrick then progressed into the um, drug scene. They called him like a speed freak. He loved drugs and he also started to drink. Just everything. He's dabbling. He's dabbling, not making very good choices. So while staying at one psychiatric hospital, Patrick was actually diagnosed as being a psychopath. The actual diagnosis, psychopath. And at a detention for juveniles, a doctor said that without intervention, he could go on to become a cold psychopathic killer and recommended that he be committed. They should have listened. They really did. They really should have. Well, okay, this is what they believed, but Marion, Patrick's mother, she kept bailing him out of every situation. Ugh. You can't blame her, it's her kid. You, I, like, I, 
I don't have a kid, obviously, but like I could imagine it's not easy watching your kid go through all this bullshit, not bullshit, but going through all this and like not want to help them. But it's not the right answer. She kept bailing him out. So because of this, Patrick was never committed or kept like, you know, somewhere safe from the public because she kept bailing him out. So I think it's safe to say that not a lot of people were big fans of Patrick, but there were a few people besides his mother that at least like took pity on him and wanted to give him a second chance. And one of those people was a kind and friendly priest named Father Crean. So like I said, Father Crean loved to drink and uh, he loved to tipple. He was a fixture at the pubs in Shorn, and he would always buy Patrick drinks when he saw him at the pubs and just be friendly to him. I mean, maybe he thought he could get through to him, just befriend him. He needed a positive figure in his life, you know? So the best way to like do that is become friends with the person. And that's what Father Green seemed to be doing, befriending him. So the two were just drinking buddies. And Patrick also seemed to like him as well in a very, unique Patrick way. I mean, anyone who is getting him drunk is an A plus in his book. But a few months into their friendship, Patrick broke into Father Crean's cottage and stole a check. Remember the check I mentioned earlier? Yeah, so he steals this check. Now I guess the check was made out to cash for 30 pounds, as in there was no name on the check. You could just take it to the bank and get the money. But the check was originally written for um, $30 and Patrick got a little creative and turned that three into an eight. And then he cashed it for 80 bucks. Sounds small, right? I was like, 80 bucks? Okay, but I get it. <laughs> I used to do that on my homework. I would turn my 30s into 80s and get Bs. Like, look, ma, got a B. Patrick, yes, he got caught, but Father Crean decided not to press charges. Instead, he went to Patrick and was like, all I'm asking from you is to just pay me back, man. And he even asked Patrick, hey, look, you can pay just seven pounds a week until the full amount is paid, is paid back. And then all would be forgiven. And it was like kind of clear that Father Crane really felt for this guy and just was trying to work with him, right? But Patrick never paid him back. And that's when like the friendship ended up fading. He didn't even make one pound of a donation back to Father Crane. What a dick. I just don't think it was in Patrick. He probably didn't know how to just be like a nice person. So two years later, Patrick came out and said, why he did it, because everyone's like, well, why did you kill Father Crean? He was such a good man, bleep, blah, bloop. And Patrick's response as to why he killed Father Crean was because he was annoyed with how Father Crean handled the situation. He shouldn't have to pay him back. He was annoyed. That's why he killed him. That's what he said. He was annoyed. It annoyed him. <laughs> wow. These ones are the scary ones. Like this guy's out of control, Patrick, obviously. Okay, we can all agree. He didn't have a great upbringing. Right, right, right. But there's, he's still really scary because this guy is just gonna kill for no damn reason. And he was. And maybe this is why Patrick was so excited to get caught because I think it was all just too much. I mean, as it turns out, Father Crean wasn't even his first murder. Oh, nay, nay. Patrick had escalated much, much earlier than that and he had left behind a trail of bodies. 
like literally tons. Now it's not quite clear as to like what was the first murder, which I guess Patrick was good at what he did or investigators were bad at what they did. Either way, they believed Patrick had done this first murder, but they didn't have any evidence linking him to it, just a belief. And on top of that, Patrick was a liar. He lied a lot. Patrick would confess to something and then he would take it back or he would brag about like another murder or something and then say he didn't remember or he never said that. He was just flip-flopping all over the place. But once Patrick was in custody, police in Kent and London, in those areas, they started taking a look at some of their unsolved cases to see if anything like matched up to Patrick. And this is what they found, let me tell you. It was believed that his first murder was a simple one. As simple as murder could get, I guess. So Patrick could never hold a job down. He would like get a job, work it for a day or two, and then it wouldn't work out. It just didn't go with his personality. So he was always broke. He never had money, right? So his first crime started out as robberies and he would break into people's houses and just steal whatever he could find, right? And this became a pretty solid outlet for him or source of income. He was good at it. He excelled at it. I mean, being a psychopath and all, I would imagine he was very good at it. And it's not just Father Crane he stole from. He stole from anyone he possibly could. Money was the motive here. Well, I think that's what he thought, but really I just think he liked the thrill of it all in my personal opinion. But there's always a second drive or let's say organization to Patrick's attacks because I think he just killed to kill. But he would often spout out like all the Nazi stuff. That's why he was killing. That could be true too, right? Anyways, back in July of 1973, which is like two months after he stole that check from his friend, Father Crean, an 18 year old nanny named Heidi was stabbed to death while on a train and her body was then thrown onto the, the tracks. Police were confused by this one cause uh, there was no motive it seemed and they didn't even know where to start because it was just so brutal, but they couldn't find a motive. Allegedly, another woman who was taking the same train that day said that there was a man, this very intense looking man that fit Patrick's description, came up to her, held a knife to her throat, asked if she was German, and then said he hates Germans, especially all German women. You think he would like Germans though? Because he's a Nazi, right? Hmm, I didn't think about that one. Anyways, this woman gave the description. Luckily she was like, Patrick didn't kill her. He killed some other woman, but she gave this description of this attack and it sounded like Patrick to investigators. So they're thinking, okay, definitely could be Patrick. And then they go and they question him and he actually confessed to that one. But even with his confession, they could not prove it. There was no evidence that he actually did it. He also murdered an elderly woman and her name was Isabella in 1974 on Valentine's Day. So rude. Well, not that you like you still. He could have waited. Isabella was like a pretty um, well-off widow and Patrick was apparently on the prowl to mug somebody one day. So he sees her and he goes up and he talks to her. He was charmed by her, he just liked her. Or maybe he thought there was like some more goodies for him at her house that he could steal. So instead of mugging her on the street, he actually offered to help carry her cat food all the way home. 
That's so sad. Yeah, so he's like, hey, I can help you, whatever. So he carries the cat food, he helps her. And then once they get to her house, she invites him in. And they end up chatting, you know. And I guess they got along pretty great because she told him to come back anytime, you know, come visit. And he did. They became kind of like friends or he was planning an attack that was like taking a long time. Either way, he comes back, they're kind of like friends. She would give him cash to go grocery shopping for her and he would do it. I don't know if he kept the change, maybe he did. Unfortunately though, that didn't last. There was one day, again, Valentine's Day, this happened on Valentine's Day. She went out to like a Valentine's Day party and she came home. She was pretty wiped out. She was like 87. So doing one thing, that was enough. She comes home, pooped, and who comes knocking on the door? It's Patrick. Patrick's there. And this woman tells Patrick, you know, oh, not tonight. Like, I'm really tired. I'm gonna go to bed, maybe, an maybe another time. So she closes the door on him. Well, Patrick did not like that. He did not like the answer, no. And this set him off. He ended up breaking down her door, okay? He, and he gets in the house and ends up stabbing her to death just because she wanted to go to bed, this poor woman. Patrick has confessed to killing up to 11 people in total, but it's believed that there are more. Like I said, it's like really hard to get a straight answer from Patrick and he would confess to something and then just take it back and then confess to something and then take it back. And because they had no physical evidence actually like linking him to these crimes, it was like, we think he did it, but maybe? But police never gave up. I mean, they would push him and push him during questioning. And sometimes when pushed just far enough, he would remember like a small little detail that no one else would know. Like no media coverage, anything had released this. So it was like, mm, mm-hmm. Or there'd be times when Patrick would have memories of like the layout of a room where the victims died and no one else would know about that. So even though he was lying left and right, just lying all the time, police were still able to kind of like dig through the lies a bit and see some moments of truth come through. And one consistency that made investigators pretty sure it was Patrick was that when he killed someone in a house or a home, he would always lock the door behind him. That was like, Patrick's thing, he would lock the front door behind him. So with some of these previous murders, like the front door would be locked and they would think it was him and really just kind of base it off of that. I don't know. Well, the trial happens. He's arrested, the trial happens, right? And as you might imagine, there were tons of questions at the trial about whether or not Patrick was even fit to stand the trial at all. I mean, Patrick was known for these horrible killings, but when it came down to it, when being questioned, he, he would just have no memory. He was like, oh, I didn't kill anybody, whatever. And then behind the scenes in jail, he would like brag to, um, you know, fellow cellmates about his killings. And he just came off as erratic and had like his psychotic brain was even more messed up from like the drugs and alcohol. And he just didn't seem to be all there from a very young age. So authorities decided that since Patrick did have an actual diagnosed psychiatric disorder, the prosecution dropped the murder charges and only tried him for a lesser charge of manslaughter. What? Excuse me? Yeah, when I read that, I was like, no, no, don't tell me he got out. Don't tell me he got out. But yes, 
he was being charged with five counts of manslaughter and only convicted for manslaughter of Father Crean, Isabella, and another elderly woman named Adele Price, who he had also murdered in his own home. I think because these were like the murders where Patrick left fingerprints behind. I didn't quite get clarification there. And you're probably like, Bailey, manslaughter? What the hell? That's nothing. I'm pretty sure the judge or whatever got the picture, like the writing was on the wall with this guy. So Patrick was still sentenced to life in prison with a minimum 20 year sentence and has had parole denied every single time he's tried. And the parole has been going on for like 28 years. So where is Patrick now? Well, Patrick is still alive. Oh yeah, he's 69 years old eh, and has been behind bars for 47 years, which makes him Britain's longest serving prisoner. Congratulations, Patrick, you did it. Wow, what an achievement. Congratulations. Dream big, they say. And then on top of that, just to change things up, he wanted a little refresher or something. He legally changed his name to David Groves. Hope you never get out, David Groves. Yeah, I don't think you will. Let's hope not, but sometimes these people really let us down out there, huh? Justice system, huh? They've been letting out the crazies sometimes. So I guess he was up for parole in November of 2022, but something delayed his hearing and reportedly he was furious, like livid, that he would not be out by Christmas. He was like, how dare you guys? I needed this. We all needed this. He's also constantly been saying for years that there's some kind of conspiracy to keep him in jail and that's why he's there. Yes, David slash Patrick, there is a conspiracy against you. It's called the court system. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's where he's at now. And I hope you never get out. Well, that my friends is the story about Patrick Mackey and how awful he was. I gave like the toned down version. I would highly recommend if you wanna know more, cause this man did a lot, look into, well, I wouldn't suggest looking into them cause they're also brutal. But this man 100% deserves to be locked away forever and I hope he never gets out. He's scary. Dude, he would just attack anybody at random. These are the ones that like really scare me because there's no rhyme or reason to their crazy. Well, there is, like he had a bad upbringing and whatnot, but he's obviously to an extreme, right? Just anybody he saw, he would attack. Animals, plants, stealing stuff, walking around the neighborhood with a rake to attack people, curb stomping kids. Like what the? F, he should have been locked up a long time ago and his mother got in the way, mother. Look, if your kid is running amok, a doing some crazy ass shit, you can't be bailing them out. I'm sorry, you gotta let them. I shouldn't be giving parenting advice, I apologize. But you know what I'm saying, right? I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. You make good choices and I will be seeing you guys later. Be safe out there, please. Thank you. Goodbye. I should write Patrick a letter. Hey, Patrick, you suck. No, I don't want to be on his hit list. Oh, God. Okay.